All right, well, good morning again. Welcome and welcome to people viewing online. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and this morning we're continuing in our series through all the I end statements through the Gospel of John. And I wanted to start off with a question or something for us to think about before we jump in. Have you ever had a phone call that completely changed your day, either for the better, maybe for the worse? Have you ever had a moment in time where just one simple sentence seemed to change everything, just changed your outlook? Renee and I have a a saying, and we, we don't say it much. Usually it comes up when we might be arguing with one another, but it's this, that perspective changes everything. A little bit of truth, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of understanding, a little bit of maybe hearing the other person out, a little bit of explanation and background can change everything. How we view the situation can change the posture of our heart. It's amazing how one phone call, one text message, one conversation, one sentence, in this case, seven words, can change everything. I remember when I was in seventh grade, I remember this clearly. My bus stop was diagonally across the street from my house. And I remember making that walk across the street, you know, and and with every step, I'm that much further away from joy and happiness and that much closer to another eight hours of the dredge of school. And as I'd walk to that bus stop, I could see the rubber coated steps of the bus that I was about to step onto, and there it was, like the doors would close. Freedom gone. I remember standing at the, at the bus stop, you know, and you're just like breathing in the fresh air because it's like, oh, this is going to be it for a while, you know. But I remember this one particular spring morning where the bus pulled up. I didn't see it at the time. The bus was completely empty. So the bus pulls up, and my bus driver opened the door, and she said, the school's water line broke, the school is flooded, head home, we'll let you know when the school reopens. Can you imagine that? Your bus driver telling you that, your teacher telling you that? Head home, because back then it, it, there were no text messaging and there wasn't automated phone calls, there wasn't emails, all this stuff. The best way they could communicate that message to us students was to send the bus drivers around, open the door, Deliver the news, close the door, and move on. Those doors closed, and the bus drove away, and I was like, this is the best day of my life. Couple sentences. And then the posture of my heart, you know, just like the, the dredge and the weight of it just lifted. I'm like, this is great. Life is good. Couple sentences changed everything. In that moment, my attitude changed everything. It changed everything. So this morning, we're going to look at the next I am statement in Jesus's ministry. And this I am statement seemed to change everything. The narrative of Jesus's ministry through the gospel of John at this point seems to pivot. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, 
Jesus makes this declaration just before he performs the dramatic miracle, the popular miracle that we all know about where he raises his beloved friend Lazarus from the dead. He brings his friend back to life. I can only imagine that as Jesus was performing these miracles, right? We've been studying about these miracles. Right before he says, I am the bread of life, he feeds 5,000 people in chapter 6. He heals a blind man in chapter 9 before he goes on to explain how he's the door, he's the gate, he's the good shepherd who takes care of his flock. And we can see in other gospel accounts that Jesus is already bringing people back to life in Mark 5, a temple official, Jairus, his, his daughter, he brings her back to life. In Luke 7, the son of a widow, in the, in the middle of their burial processional, he brings their son back to life and it turns into this, just this, this parade of joy. But we can see that, that at this point in the, in the story, at this point in the gospel, it seems like the, the heat kind of turns up for the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day. And this is what kind of gets their attention and the, the story starts to pivot. In fact, in the NIV translation, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and then the very next section is titled The Plot to Kill Jesus. The story begins to pivot here. Changes things in people's minds. My hope and our prayer, I think our prayer should be this morning to invite God to do the same in our hearts. Because we believe that this written word is living and active in our lives. We believe that the pow- through the power of the Spirit, these words jump off the page, they penetrate our heart, they convict us where necessary, they transform us to be more and more like Christ. So we pray this morning, like God, would you change the posture of our heart. Give us that bit of information. When we see this, when you, we see this declaration and we see the response, we see that we read about the miracle, whatever shifts there, we want it to shift in our heart as well. We want to see what Jesus is teaching through this I am statement. So before we jump into opening the word of God, I want to take a moment to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we surrender to you as always. We surrender to you in the authority of your written word. We surrender to the power of your spirit living within us, knowing that when we turn to this book, this, in, this, this unexhaustible text, that we can just keep turning to these words over and over again and that they, they speak to us in different ways in different seasons, that you and your will and in your timing you reveal yourself to us. So God, we we invite you to do that through the power of your spirit. Transform our hearts. Help us to see things that we need to root out of our hearts. Help us to see things that we need to embrace into our hearts and build into our lives. We're so thankful for your word, your spirit, your son Jesus. We pray these things in his mighty, mighty name. Amen. So this morning, the, the, Jesus' I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life, is like I said, it's contextualized around this miracle of Jesus raising 
Lazarus from the dead. Now, we aren't, we aren't going to read through the whole account of John 11, but I did want to focus in on a, on a, on a dialogue between Jesus and Martha, who's Lazarus's sister, right before he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. In order to do that, we kind of need to set the stage first, though. So Jesus had returned to the town of Bethany, which is where Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus lived. And it's important to note in verse 17 how it says that Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. The Gospel of John is, is very intentional in pointing out that Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. Why is that important? We need to understand that in those days, Jewish tradition was, the belief was, that the soul of a deceased person hovers over the body of the deceased person. D.A. Carson writes in his commentary on the Gospel of John that the belief was the soul hovers over the body of a deceased person for the three days, for three days, intending to re-enter it, so like resuscitation. But as soon as it sees its appearance start to change, the soul would depart. So that was the belief. The belief was that for three days, the soul hovered around the deceased person. After it saw it start to decompose and it saw the body started to change, it would depart. That's why, it's, that's why John points out that Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. What does this tell us? What is this emphasizing? What it's emphasizing is this sense of finality. He's been in the tomb for four days. It's done. He's dead. What's done is done. So what it's communicating, when Jesus steps onto the scene, as Jesus is about to make the statement, the air around, the context around What's happening is this sense of finality. It's done. And Jesus even bumps into this as well as he's about to call Lazarus out of the tomb. We read in verse 33, we read how there was weeping and mourning. And verse 33 says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. And then I'll always remember this. Uh, because it's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it goes on to verse 35 where it says, Jesus wept. Me, when I read this story, I filter it through my own understanding of what happens at a funeral. It says that Lazarus was Jesus' beloved friend. People are mourning. People are crying out. It was a loud event. But the Christian Standard Bible translation of this same verse, which is a legit translation, in fact, if you go into the the Greek word used here, a better understanding of that word deeply moved would be angry in spirit, almost like an agitation. Indignant was another word. Almost like an annoyance. Why does it say that? Why does it say twice that Jesus was angry in his spirit? When he's moved, because in the NIV it says he was deeply moved and troubled. What's that deeply moved? What's that anger in spirit? Is he angry at the Jews for mourning the loss of their friends? 
I don't think so. Is he angry at Martha and Mary? Well, definitely not, because in the dialogue that follows, that, that sort of posture doesn't come out. I think what is agitating or what's moving his spirit is he's experiencing that same sense of finality. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He already knows this. But here he sees Mary and Martha. He sees what would have been a community of Jewish people who would come to the family in their time of mourning and grief, wailing out and crying out. Jesus is meeting, is, is, is kind of seeing death face to face in this morning, in this moment. Not seeing death face to face, maybe seeing the effects of death. The reality of what this sense of finality and death produces among people. Because remember, they're thinking, this is done. So Jesus is meeting face to face the very thing he was sent to destroy. He knows he's going to destroy it. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. I have to wonder if that same feeling was what he was feeling when he entered the temple. He drove out merchants who were using God's holy temple as a, as a place of, of trade and sale. Is that that same feeling of, of knowing like this is not how it's supposed to be? The very thing he was sent to destroy, he's now meeting. He's now seeing the effects of it. And I think that's enough to move his spirit. So we go back to his, his dialogue. It's himself and Martha, who was, remember Martha and Mary from the story where they were a family who were hospitable to the disciples and to Jesus. We know the story about how Mary was at Jesus' feet being taught while Martha was the busy one getting the house together. So Martha's kind of like the doer. She's kind of like the go-getter. When she he hears that Jesus is returning, the story says that Martha goes out to meet him while Mary stays home. And we'll sense that same finality in Martha's response when she meets Jesus. That starts in John 11, verse 21 and 22. It says, when Martha comes out to Jesus, she says, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's that finality. My brother is dead. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. I love this because in these sentences, Martha's revealing her belief as well. In the midst of her grief, she knows that Jesus has the power to produce miracles. In the midst of that sense of finality, does she know that, La that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Does she know that it's even a possibility? I'm not sure. The text doesn't say. But she definitely lets us know what she believes, which is that God will give Jesus whatever he asks, that Jesus possesses the same power as his Father. Have you ever had a, a moment like that where maybe amidst trial or maybe of what you, in your own limited understanding, you can't really make sense of, but you hold on to that truth, you hold on to that faith, you hold on to knowing that God has the power to do so much more than we could ever imagine. 
Jesus goes on to reply to her, your brother will rise again. It says that Martha answered that I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Jesus, in the midst of this finality, there it is again, this sense of what's done is done, my brother's dead. Jesus responds to her, but he almost kind of gives her more than she's able to handle in that moment. Because in that moment, Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead. But to Martha, that's not, that's not what she's thinking. Her head doesn't go there. She answers. Says, yeah, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She's referring to the Jewish belief in the resurrection of the last day. We can see this in the, the book of Daniel, which she would have known the prophecy, the vision, where in Daniel 12, 2, it says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. So she's referring to this far-off event where, there's, where they're believed that the righteous would be resurrected and that there would be condemnation for the wicked. So her and her limited knowledge still can't get out of this bubble of finality. And she probably thinks that Jesus is just trying to console her with that truth that she knows that is far off. And this is where Jesus says to her. He says, no, no. I am the resurrection. I am the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus responds with this revelation, with this I am statement. In the midst of this sense of finality, this grieving, this mourning, in the midst of this feeling of like nothing can be done, that's when Jesus says, I can do something. I am resurrection defeating death. I am life, life to the fullest. What's interesting is, too, when we read this story, when Jesus hears that Lazarus is ill, he actually waits where he is for two days and then returns to Bethany. Because at that moment, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows the opportunity that that's going to afford. And so when he makes this statement, if Jesus was just to say this as they were walking along their way, I wonder how impactful it would have been to the disciples. But to enter into this moment where what's being communicated by his followers is this sense of finality and death and defeat and it's done, that's when he says, no, no, I am resurrection, I am life. Death doesn't have the final word. Of course, he then goes on and he raises Lazarus from the dead. He says, Lazarus, come out. If the words weren't enough, the miracle follows. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. When I read these words, I think back to John 10, 10, where we were learning about Jesus as the good shepherd and as the gate, where he says, he's talking about the thieves who come in from another means He's speaking about his flock. 
It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I've read that verse before, and when I, when I read that verse, I think of like life to the full as, yeah, God wants me happy. He wants me satisfied. He wants me to prosper. But I'll tell you, after reading this story and then reading back to those words, I'm thinking like life is, when he says life to the full, he's talking about something that just perpetuates. It overflows. It's everlasting. It's never ending. Death, suffering, yeah, that's a part of it, but it's not the end. Life to the full is life everlasting. There is no end. That's what he's talking about here when he says that I am the resurrection and the life. There's no mourning. Our hope is in eternity. Our hope is in something so much more than the suffering and the death that we experience in this life. Jesus provides that. The miracle of life. To be able to call out Lazarus from the tomb just as he's called each one of us out and invited us into a life, a full, full life, everlasting life. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? I love Martha's reply. She says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. It's a woman of faith making a profoundly bold statement. This is a statement that would have gotten her stoned. It would have gotten her killed. We read earlier that when Jesus said, we're going to go back to Bethany because my friend is ill, his disciples said, you're crazy. They just tried to stone you. The Pharisees just tried to stone you. It says in the story that Bethany is less than two miles away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the Pharisees are. And the Pharisees are who want Jesus dead. So for Martha, in this town less than two miles away from Jerusalem, where there's undoubtedly Jews who have traveled from Jerusalem to be there with the family, says, I believe. That's a bold, bold statement of faith, and it's pretty awesome. But she was responding to that question, which ultimately is a question for each one of us as well. Do you believe? Do you believe this? Not only in the, the, the feet of death, you know, so, so many times we, or I shouldn't say we, but I, in growing in my faith, would think of salvation and the hope to come. It's just heaven and eternity. I would lie there in bed as a kid and I'd say the prayer over and over again to make sure that I was a Christian because I just wanted to avoid that death. But Jesus is saying he's about giving life. He's not only asking, do you believe that I'm the resurrection and I've defeated death, but do you believe that I am the life, life to the full? Does your life live that out The truth is as simple as this, that in Jesus, there's no finality in death. Sin does not have the final word. Our brokenness does not have 
the final word. Our falling short of the glory of God is not the end. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came to defeat sin, to defeat death, and to give life. And he's asking, do you believe this? When he says, I am the resurrection, defeating death, and I am the life, life to the full, do you believe this? You, do you t- take that I am statement and do you build it into your life, into your heart? Does it overflow from who you are and how you live? In the midst of grief and pain and struggle and death, relationships, does this truth overflow from your heart? Does this belief overflow from your heart? On those days where, where you just don't know if you're going to make it, do you believe this, this hope? When you think you know what should happen, but you're trying your hardest to trust that God knows better, do you believe in this hope, in this life? Whenever I want perspective on hope, Whenever I want perspective on the promise, I always turn to 1 Peter because he's, he's writing that letter for this very reason, to remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. If that's not a message of hope for us, then I don't know what is. Jesus is asking, do you believe this? We're going to see that as we continue through this series, that Jesus' statements become more and more pointed. Pointed at the invitation to believe, and the opportunity that his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection gives us to participate in that hope as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we purposely, at the end of this series, have set aside a Sunday morning for baptism because we anticipate that God's going to move through that message of hope and that people are going to respond to that very question and say, yes, I believe. I trust you, Jesus. I believe that you have overcome Death, I believe that you will give me life and life to the full. Maybe not in this life, but definitely in the hope that we have before us. And that changes everything. The posture of our hearts, how we live our lives. So I want to encourage anyone who may be viewing online or anyone who may be visiting us who has not been baptized That is our response to that question. If you were to answer that question, yes, I believe, then we're commanded to be baptized. If you are, if you want to learn more about baptism, 
then you can reach out to anyone who teaches on Sunday morning or anybody who's on staff, and we can guide you in that next step. But I encourage you to take that step, to respond to that question. Do you believe? Jesus is giving us an invitation. I pray that we respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Just the affirmation of your call upon our hearts. God, for those of us who already have a relationship with you, these words are just an, an, an affirmation of where we set our hope, how we build our lives around this simple truth that in you, there's no finality in death. You have defeated death and you give life so much more than we can experience in our time here on earth. So we acknowledge that, and even in our worship, we acknowledge that, that you are our hope. Our hearts are set on you, God. God, in the things of this world, they start to grow dim when we consider the hope and glory that we have in you. It's so awesome to be able to say that. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his mighty, mighty name. Amen.